views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre-recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky. Ms. Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities, and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert, Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky. Hey, everyone. I'm Gene Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Everyday Wealth. Do you have enough insurance? I'm not talking about auto or homeowner's insurance, although when it comes to the latter, if you haven't reassessed your coverage since home prices spiked, that is something that you should probably do. What I'm talking about are the coverages that I know many of you do not have enough of, life, disability, and long-term care. We're going to dig into how much you need and how to get that coverage in the most cost-effective way. We're also going to talk about some lesser-known policies that you probably should have more of, like umbrella insurance, and about the insurance policies that you probably don't need. Look, it's no surprise. Insurance can be a complicated topic, so we are going to bring break it down with some very simple guidelines and maybe even bust some myths along the way. So let's kick off our conversation by focusing on life insurance and sharing a few interesting facts and figures to help set the stage. 50% of American adults reported having life insurance in 2022, but that leaves an awful lot of people without coverage. Some 106 million adults were without life insurance or underinsured in 2022. Perhaps part of the reason that so many go without this coverage is because of the perceived cost. More than 50% of people overestimate the cost of life insurance by 300%. What exactly goes into those rates, the rates that you pay for your coverage? Well, there's some obvious factors like aspects of your health, also gender, age, smoking status, and medical history. But there's some other less obvious factors that can influence your rates as well, including your credit history, whether you've ever filed bankruptcy, and if you ever have been convicted of a crime. Women, not surprisingly, are more likely to be underinsured than men. Roughly 60% of men have life insurance, less than 20% of women do. And somewhat discouragingly, the percentage of women with a policy has decreased over the past five years. Now, some of this is a result of women who are not in the workforce believing that they don't need insurance because we tend to undervalue our own contributions at home. Let me just say, 
if something happened to you and you would have to pay someone else to take over your daily work, whether it is paid or unpaid, you need life insurance. But there's also a big knowledge gap. 40% of men describe themselves as being very knowledgeable about life insurance. Just 20% of women say the same. Neither number, by the way, is high enough. But we are going to change that with this show. And to help me do that, I want to bring on two guests. First, welcome back, Isabel Barrow. Good to see you as always. Hi, Jean. Nice to see you too. Isabel, of course, is a financial planner with Edelman Financial Engines. And Rob Bain is with us as well. Rob leads the insurance team at EFE. Thanks for coming back, Rob. Thanks, Jean. Good to be here. So let's start our conversation with this basic-ish question about who needs life insurance. I just got done explaining how many people are underinsured, but not everybody needs it. Not everybody needs it in retirement. And just to set us up, let's dig into it by answering a question that we received from a listener. By the way, if you have any questions, you can send them our way. Just go to everydaywealth.com, scroll down to the blue box that says, ask a question, type in your info, send it my way. That's what James did. Here is his question. Do I still need life insurance? I receive four times my annual salary in insurance and I plan to retire next year. We have no debt or mortgage. I can fund my retirement. My wife would receive half of my social security benefits. She'll have a pension and other assets for retirement and is financially secure if she's on her own. Our daughter's grown and on her own. I own some additional farmland worth $500,000. Also, I have a term policy that seems superfluous at this point. I will be 63 at retirement. Rob, what do you think? Does James need that term policy? Uh, in this case, you know, given how close he is to retirement, and also given that his spouse would be okay financially if he passed away, uh, I would say in this case, no, there's not a need for that term policy. It's a strange kind of a line. Why is retirement the line at which we evaluate when somebody does or doesn't need it? Uh, typically, when we get to retirement, we're living off of things like Social Security and pensions and IRAs and savings, and we no longer have that paycheck to protect. So again, generally speaking, we feel like most retirees don't need to maintain life insurance. If they do need to maintain it, is term still the right way to go? Uh, usually not. You know, some of the specific reasons we might want to maintain life insurance in retirement might be to maximize a pension or maybe cover estate taxes or fund a special needs trust. Those sorts of things, we need coverage that is going to stay permanent all the way to age 100 or beyond. So generally speaking, again, term's probably not going to be the right fit. So then that's sort of the point where you would look at converting a term policy? Or is this something that you should try to anticipate a few years down the road when you can buy that insurance at a lower cost? Yeah. If it's, if we're talking about the pension maximization process, then converting a single term would work. However, when we're talking about estate taxes and special needs trust funding, we're generally going to use a survivorship policy or a second to die. Okay. All right. Well, that covers life insurance, right? That's one of the seven types of insurance that you generally recommend that your clients should carry, assuming they have that kind of a situation that demands that they continue life insurance. Isabel, let's get into 
other types. Can we knock health insurance off the list? Right. I, I mean, that's a pretty obvious one that we need to get out of the way is health insurance because it's absolutely essential. Um, you know, an unexpected medical event or a big bill from something that happens to you medically can cause some severe financial issues. And in fact, a huge bill could potentially lead you to bankruptcy. You know, my mom recently had a... Um, gallbladder surgery. Now she is on Medicare with a Medicare supplement, but she's been going through these bills and like texting me and calling me about, you wouldn't believe what these bills are. I mean, it was over $40,000 for her to be in the hospital for 24 hours with a surgery. And if she didn't have her Medicare, if she didn't have that supplement, those bills would have been absolutely impossible for her to pay. And so whether or not it's, you know, through your employer, through a marketplace plan, um, or Medicare, you have to have health insurance. And I know that a big source of concern for people who are thinking, like our, our letter writer did, that they want to retire before they hit Medicare qualifying age is figuring out some way to bridge to Medicare. Do you have suggestions for the best way to do it? Well, I think that it starts with potentially COBRA. If, you know, depending on for what reasons you stop working, COBRA is something to look at um, that you may be eligible for for, what, 18 months or so. But, you know, it's not a foregone conclusion that COBRA is actually going to be the most affordable option for you. I think that for a lot of people, looking at the exchange, looking at the Affordable Care Act options through their marketplace, through their state, that may end up being more affordable for them. But you do need to know that, you know, if you retire before 65, you're not automatically on Medicare. So you do have to think about that as part of your retirement process is, okay, well, there's going to be a change here in what my expenses are related to medical. Let's dig into disability insurance. And I've often heard that disability insurance is the coverage that most people need, but the fewest number of people actually have. Right. And I, well, I think especially if you're self-employed, you know, or you're someone who's a gig worker, you know, you may not even think about it. You know, you've thought about your medical insurance, but you haven't thought about disability. And and it's something that, that really is one of those things that, again, most people should have, especially if there's someone in your household who is dependent on your income. You know, you have a spouse or a child that that is also going to be dependent. You know, if you lose your income, who's going to be supporting them? Or even if you're single, right? If you're a single individual and you lose your income, there's no one to back you up, right? right? You could end up back on your parents' couch, which would make absolutely no one happy. What what exactly does disability insurance do? And when do you want to look at buying it? Well, so what disability insurance does in general is it's meant to replace a portion of your salary if you are unable to work for one reason or another related to either a temporary or a permanent or long-term disability. So it's an income replacement, essentially. And it's while you might not think that's all that important to consider because you say, well, I'm, I'm young and healthy, the reality is that 25% of young workers today will become 
become disabled before the time they're 67. Now, about 35% of private sector workforce has no disability insurance in place. So you're out there and you're thinking that you're covered. You may not be. So it is important to look at this as part of your benefits package, to look at it every single year and make sure that you understand what short and long-term disability you have. And then, you know, another piece of disability that we think about is social security disability, Mm -hmm. because you may say, well, that's what I'm paying into in the social security system. But you shouldn't be reliant on that as your only form of disability insurance because the reality is it's really hard to get approved for social security disability. There are not all that many illnesses or or dis- what you may consider to be a disabling event that are actually considered to be a, an official social security uh, disability insurance qualifying illness. Plus the benefits themselves, not really enough to live on. No, the average benefit I think is around $1,400 a month and the maximum benefit is around $3,600 a month. So depending on what your income is, that might not be enough to cover your bills alone without some type of additional disability insurance policy. And I know some people just think, well, if I'm injured, I'll just get workers' comp. Well, workers' comp is only going to help you if that injury or that disabling event occurs in the workplace, right? So if it's something that happens to you while you're at work and it happens because of your type of work or your line of work, then maybe, but For most people, that's not how they actually become disabled. It's something that happens outside of the workplace. Rob, I have always figured that the best place, if you can, because disability insurance is very expensive, and the best place to get it, if you can, is from your employer. If your employer offers a group policy, you want to be in that. Is that that where you'd first look? For sure. Um, And the good news is that I think 35%, as Isabel mentioned, don't, but That means a good number of employers do offer that benefit. But what people need to know about is that even though they do have that workplace disability benefit, they might not be fully insured. Uh, And there are three things you need to be aware of. The first is incentive comp. So most plans will cover something like 60% of your base salary, but they might not cover things like commission and bonuses. The second thing we need to be cognizant of is a benefit cap. So most plans, again, are going to have a a benefit up to 7500 or 10000 or maybe 12000 a month. So if you're in a plan that covers 60% of your base salary with a cap of 10000 a month, then any earnings over 200000 would be uninsured. And then the last piece we need to be aware of is taxes. So in many cases, the employer is paying the premium for this benefit, and therefore the benefits you bring home would be taxes, ordinary income. So 25 to 30% of your benefit are going to be eaten up by taxes. So even if you're not in a situation where you have a lot of incentive comp uh, or you're not making enough to be affected by that benefit cap, in all likelihood, you are impacted by those taxes. So you might want to consider a supplemental disability policy to cover that loss of benefit. How much supplemental disability insurance will the insurers actually sell you? They'll do the math and they'll basically use that 60% number most of the time. So they'll say, okay, well, 60% of your total income minus what you're getting through your employer is the, is the gap. And that's the amount we'll allow you to buy. So they'll take taxes into consideration when they run that math. Exactly. Okay. Because they don't want to give you more than 60, sometimes a little bit more percent because they want you to come back to work. Exactly. You You need that incentive. They don't want you to be too comfortable. They want you to work hard to do your physical therapy and, and get back in the workforce. 
Isabel, I mentioned homeowners insurance at the top of the show and how because of home prices now might be a, a pretty good time to reassess if you have enough. Yeah, I mean, a homeowner's policy is just yet another one of those things you can't get away without having. I mean, in in part because a mortgage company, if you have a mortgage, is going to require you to have a homeowner's policy during the life of your mortgage. But even if your mortgage is gone, you still need to maintain a homeowner's policy. And, it, and for most of us, I think, you're, you know, your home is going to be your most valuable asset. And a homeowner's insurance policy is meant to protect that. You know, whether or not it be damaged to your home, or, you know, I, I had a homeowner's policy claim because we had an appliance that had rusted out and it flooded everything in our basement. And we had to have floors replaced and walls replaced and we had to have mold mitigation and all sorts of things. And it was a pretty big claim that I would have struggled to pay without my homeowner's policy. So, um, you know, it's there to provide the necessary funds and maybe even accommodations, for example, if you're displaced from your home for some period of time. So it could be a big expense that you don't want to have to just rely on your emergency fund for. That's the purpose of, of homeowners insurance. We are planning a, a renovation at our house at the shore, and it's been very, very tough to get a contractor because contractors right now are very busy. And because they're very busy and econ 101, right, the costs are up. And that's the kind of thing you have to factor into how much homeowners insurance you're carrying, right, Rob? I mean, it's if you don't have enough value in that policy to cover the cost of what it will really cost you to rebuild, you've left yourself uncovered to some degree. Absolutely true. Yeah, that coverage A, if you will, or the dwelling coverage, as we call it, um, you've got to make sure that's sufficient to replace your home. And as you've mentioned, you know, if your house happens to burn down at a time where labor and material are both very high, then you might be in danger of not having enough coverage there. Some policies will have an extension of that amount, so look for that in your policy. But it definitely has to be revisited periodically every couple of years. Another phenomenon that we've been seeing, Rob and I were talking about this this morning, is that state by state, there have been some major changes there in have. homeowners policy pricing and in availability of different policies. You know, there are certain states, California and Florida come to mind, where, you know, there are some insurers that are just getting out of the business or it's dramatically more expensive um, depending on what state you live in. And that, that goes for all types of insurance, by the way. It's not just homeowners. It's right. medical. It's car insurance, you know. So. Well, stay with homeowners for a second. If you live in one of those states and you're seeing that homeowners insurers are leaving the marketplace, what's the move? Well, you can't really do anything about it unless you physically move to another state, right? Right. Um, somebody's going to step into the void, whether that's a state program or another insurer that says, hey, there's an opportunity in California, for example, to sell some insurance. But, uh, you know, in California, you get separate policy for home and versus earthquake, right? Mm -hmm. And in Florida, like Isabel mentioned, you're going to have one for fire and another for wind and hail. And in New Jersey, we have one for flood. flood so there you go. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, but, I mean, even if these insurers step in to fill the void, it's going to be a lot more expensive for those right. people living in those states where they're considered to be high risk. All right, let's talk about one of my favorite subjects. Actually, it is one of my favorite subjects because I think it's fascinating and so important. Long-term care. You help your clients with this all the time. I get a lot of letters about this because, again, it's a very, very costly coverage to buy. And this year in particular, we saw a lot of people getting notices that their premiums were going up. Right. Yeah, it's really important to consider it. 
70%, I think, is the number of today's 65-year-olds will need some form of long-term care during retirement. And the average cost of a private room in a nursing home nationwide today is $108,000. By the year 2030, that's expected to exceed $141,000 a year. So it's, uh, you know, the average length of a claim is three years. So do the math. I mean, right. three, four, five hundred thousand $500,000 of total care. Could you afford to have that leave your portfolio? So who do you tell to buy long-term care insurance versus not to buy it? Well, obviously, I work closely with our planners like Isabel, but I think what we're doing is looking at, does that particular client have enough income and assets to fund their retirement and cover that potential claim? And if the answer is no, then we need to look at transferring some of that risk to an insurance policy via long-term care insurance. I think we start looking, you know, if you're over 50, that's kind of the benchmark. And we start looking at, okay, does long-term care insurance make sense? And and there are certainly those who can self-insure, but the younger you start, the less expensive it's going to be. So, you know, you don't know where you're going to be financially, maybe at 70 or 80 when you're starting to look at this at 50. So, you know, I think that that's a good place to start. And sometimes there are plans that are available through your employer. So that's an easy way to go. And other times you're looking at going privately and buying either a traditional or a hybrid long-term care. And something important, certainly, to talk to your financial advisor about to figure out whether or not you're in that we can self-insure category or, you know, we need to look at insurance some other way. And even if you can self-insure, you may not want to self-insure, right? If you're looking to leave a legacy for your kids or for a cause that you care about, you might prefer to buy the insurance so that you know that your legacy is locked up. Right. And I think most of the math would say that paying for the insurance is going to ultimately be less expensive than paying the four or $500,000 that it costs to be in a long-term care facility for a couple of years. So it's just one of those things, as with all insurance, I like to say this about insurance, is that you buy it hoping you never have to use it. I mean, you hope you never use your car insurance or your homeowners or, you know, you never have a major illness that you need to use your, you know, your health insurance for. But you buy the insurance because you know that the likelihood is you probably will need it. Yeah. And if you've got older parents, if you're listening and you have older parents and they have received these notices that so many of them went out this year, I can't even tell you how many letters I got. And I can't, I know that's such a small sampling of the marketplace. If your parents got a letter and it is now unaffordable for them to pay this policy increase and it happens to be affordable for you, I mean, this is one of those situations where I think it's to the benefit of the entire family unit for the adult kids to step in. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Isabel, what's next? Car insurance. So yet again, going back to like, you know, you have insurance for something that you hope never, ever happens, but you've got to have auto insurance. There are about over 5 million car crashes in the United States every single year, according to the most recent data. And so we know accidents are going to happen, whether or not it's a minor fender bender or a major accident, you know, you have to have insurance to cover you in the event that it does. And it's beyond just collision coverage for your car. You, you should also have auto insurance that is going to cover you in the event that the other party has damage or medical expenses related to the accident that you are found to be at fault for. Are there specific coverage details that people need to be aware of right now, Rob? Sure. Yeah. The first one is Isabel Isabel just talked about, which is your liability coverage in the auto policy. So that's the part of the policy that's going to pay to repair or replace other people's cars or property if you're at fault in the accident. 
as an old manager back in the day used to tell me, you can't pick who you're going to hit. Right. Uh, so that if that person that you just crashed into happened to have a brand new Porsche, uh, or you cause an accident that damages several vehicles, you know, you might not have enough coverage there. The most common coverage limits we see in that area are 50000 to to 100000 mm-hmm. which might not be enough. The good news is that it doesn't cost a lot to increase that to something like $200,000. But that is something, that increase, that you probably have to take on proactively with your auto insurer. Yeah, unless you're lucky enough to have an agent who's really on the ball and is calling you to review that stuff, uh, you should do it. All right. Other parts of the coverage that we don't pay enough attention to? These days, definitely rental reimbursement. Mm. So, you know, this is the part of the policy that's going to pay for a rental car if your car's in the shop, right? So if you're in an accident, your body shops are taking much longer to repair cars these days. And rental car prices have gone through the roof, right? So crazy. Uh, you might not have enough coverage there to pay for that rental vehicle while your car's in the body shop. So you should definitely take a look at that coverage, especially if you need a truck or an SUV. You know, if you're a parent with kids and sports equipment and you're hauling stuff around. The last one on the list is one that ties together your homeowner's insurance and your auto insurance and this whole issue of liability. It's an umbrella insurance policy. We have one of these and my insurance guy keeps telling me we need to up the value. So what is it? How does it work? Fortunately, it's not that expensive. Right. Yeah. Umbrella liability coverage or excess liability coverage is called adds an amount of money to the liability provided on your home and auto. So it just increases it. So can you put it into some context? I mean, if people don't have an uh, umbrella policy, they, they're probably thinking, I carry a lot of liability on my home. I carry a lot of liability on my car. Why isn't it enough? Yeah, let's use a hypothetical story to kind of paint the picture. So a man's driving in the grocery store parking lot, hits a pedestrian. And the woman that struck survives but has significant injuries. The driver of the car has a million dollars in life savings that he's worried about is could be lost in in the judgment if you know if he's required to pay medical expenses plus pain and suffering or whatever. Um, so the good news is that if he owns a liability policy, that would add an extra million dollars, let's say, to his auto coverage. That would provide enough coverage to pay the judgment and the legal fees and protect his life savings. And plus, he'd have the peace of mind knowing that the the person who got hurt would you know, receive the money that she needed. Can you explain to me, Isabel, the, the sort of link between your personal wealth and how much liability coverage you should carry? Rule of thumb is your liability, your umbrella liability policy should be your net worth. So, you know, whatever you are trying to cover, essentially, is what your umbrella policy should be. So if you're worth a million dollars, a million dollar umbrella liability is what we typically recommend. Um, You know, you have to think about your own personal circumstances, obviously. And, um, you know, if you have a windfall coming, maybe you want to include that in or a big inheritance, you know, that is coming soon. You may want to think about including that in your overall net worth formula. But that's a pretty good rule of thumb, I think, to start with. Amazing. And you guys are awesome. Can I just say, like, if I was writing a title for this show, I would say this is everything you ever needed to know about insurance, but didn't know enough to ask in 20 minutes. So thank you for that. 
Thank you. And I was going to say, like, Rob made the reference of, you know, what if you have a, a car accident and the, it's a brand new Porsche? When my brother was 16 and he had his learner's permit, he was um, pulling out of a driveway and ran into and totaled a brand new Porsche that was parked on the street. Oh, my goodness. Brand new. I think it was one day old. All right. Well, we promised at the top of the show that we were going to talk about the insurance that you actually don't need to spend your money on, the insurance that you don't need. Rob and Isabel will have that for us. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Are you worried about the current volatility of the market, inflation rates, talk of a recession? Are you second guessing your investment decisions? What better time than now to ensure your finances are moving forward than by getting an expert second opinion from an Edelman Financial Engines planner? Whether you already have a planner or simply need a new perspective, they can help you manage your wealth plan to both weather the volatility of the market today and help you protect and preserve it over the long term. To schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today, call 833-PLAN-EFE. That's 833-752-6333. Or visit their website at efewealthplanners.com. Put your uncertainties to rest once and for all. Schedule your complimentary wealth checkup right now. Welcome back. Thanks for listening. Financial planner Isabel Barrow and insurance expert Rob Bain from Edelman Financial Engines are with me. We're talking about all things insurance. And so far, we've talked about the insurance that you need. Health, life, disability, long-term care, homeowners, auto, and umbrella insurance. Now let's talk about what you don't need. Isabel, what's first on the list? First on the list, I think, is one I hear the most often when we are buying a house is private mortgage insurance, also known as PMI. So when you're buying a house, if you're putting down, if your down payment is less than 5%, and sometimes even less than 20%, oftentimes you're going to be required to purchase this PMI, this private mortgage insurance. And that way, if you don't make a payment for some reason, the policy is going to pay it off or make that payment for you. But the important thing to note is that they pay the lender. They're not paying you. You know, they're not giving you the money and saying, oh, because you've lost your job or you're unable to make a payment, we're going to help you. No, they're just making sure that the lender gets their payment. So, you know, and even if you're paying your, your mortgage on time, PMI has premium payments that can cost hundreds of dollars a month. And, you know, that can be a pretty big drain. So keep that money otherwise and instead put down 20% percent equity or at least 5% and ideally 20%. And then once you, if you are paying PMI, you should know that once you get to that 20% equity number, you should call your lender and get rid of that PMI because you're not doing anything to help yourself. You're protecting the lender. You're not helping yourself. Absolutely. Rob, what's next on the list of what you might not need? Uh, mortgage life insurance, which acts pretty similar to the PMI that Isabel just described. So it's often called decreasing term. So in this case, it's a policy that's going to pay off the remainder of your mortgage if you pass away. But the money's going to the lender, not your family, and it can be pretty expensive coverage. So a better way to go here would be to buy a term policy that's going to provide enough coverage to replace your income so that your family can keep making the payments on your mortgage. They could certainly take some of the death benefit and pay off the mortgage if right. it was in their best interest, but they get to decide. Yeah, that's a much better option, I think. There is a lot of travel insurance being peddled these days. I can't buy a flight, and I've bought a lot of flights lately without them making me 
actually check the box to say, no, I don't want this. To opt out. This happened to me too. And I ended up accidentally paying for this travel insurance because I didn't read it closely enough to realize I had to opt out. But yeah, with summer vacation time and, you know, (laughs) airports are packed, everybody is traveling. We need to watch out for this because flight insurance is one of those things that is just unnecessary. You know, you may think like, and we're talking about the ones you have to opt out of when you're buying your ticket and it says, you know, buy this flight insurance in case you can't make it for one reason or another. Well, you may actually already have flight insurance through your credit card company. So right. if you're buying, and, and if you don't opt out, that can actually interfere with your ability to use your credit card company's insurance. So if you buy your airline ticket on certain types of credit cards, um, and it does depend on the credit card company, but you've automatically got coverage for if there's a flight cancellation or some other emergency that causes you not to be able to fly. The other kind of trip insurance that I think people are historically used to thinking about is travel accident insurance, the coverage that pays out if something happens and you die. And I I just remember years ago, writing a story, we were in the very early days of Smart Money magazine, the kind of early days where you would have a meeting and you'd get to make up whole sections of the magazine out of air. And I pitched a column called Who Buys This Stuff? And travel accident insurance was the first item that we covered because your life insurance policy should cover you. If you need coverage for your life because your dependents need money if something happens to you, then you should have life insurance. You shouldn't be buying travel accident insurance. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the travel accident insurance, If the, I mean, if the plane goes down and you die in a, in a plane crash, it's a very high likelihood that the airline company is going to reimburse your family in some way anyhow. But that's what your whole life insurance is meant to do, is to protect you in the event of your passing. So it's just an extra thing that you're paying for that you shouldn't. You should instead focus on having the right type of insurance like life insurance. Does Accidental death and dismemberment insurance fall in that same category, Rob? Yeah, that's a good segue. So the plane crash, right? Right. Yeah. Accidental death coverage, or AD&D as it's called, is, unless your life is like a Buster Keaton physical comedy, an accidental death is probably not all that likely. So according to the CDC, there were 3.3 million deaths in our country in 2020, but only 7% of those were accident-related. So accidental death and dismemberment is inexpensive for a reason, right? So it's not so much that you're paying a lot of money for something that's not going to help you, but it's something you can't rely on. Right. And it's another one of those things, like I think the next one on our list, that there's so many of these micro niche insurance policies that are being sold when really you should be buying life insurance, right? That would be one cancer insurance. Cancer insurance, yeah. I mean, I would think that this would be sort of replaced by not only life insurance, but health insurance. I mean, if you have a good health insurance policy, it is going to cover you for expenses related to cancer. So cancer insurance is something where you're just specifically buying a policy that is going to pay you essentially like some amount per month to either offset expenses or to pay for healthcare related stuff if you are diagnosed with cancer. But even if you have a family history of cancer, insurance policies are designed to cover very specific things like cancer or heart disease. And they're really not worth the premiums because again, like just like what we said about 
accidental death and dismemberment, you want disability insurance, right, in the event that you are disabled from cancer and can't work, or or health insurance to cover your expenses, or life insurance in the event that you pass away. So go with those traditional insurance rather than something extra that's superfluous, that is really, really specific, and is already covered probably by your other insurance policies. What's next on the list? Next on the list is children's life insurance. So don't buy a life insurance policy on each of your children. I was told you shouldn't buy a life insurance policy on your children at all. That life insurance is for the living, right? If you were a person with no dependents, i.e. a child, you don't need it. Right. And even if you have children, you can add a child rider to your existing policy that's going to help pay for final expenses. Right? It might would, only you cost wanna, you- would you want to do that or would you, like, I, that seems to me to be something that you also wouldn't buy. Yeah. I mean, should you have enough savings to be able to fi- pay for final expenses? Obviously, that would be good, right? But it's not terribly expensive, maybe $25 a year to add that child rider. And one rider will cover all children. So if you had a big family, that might be a super inexpensive way. The other thing we would say is don't use life insurance to save for college. Instead, use a, a 529 college savings plan. Okay, you, you went through six of these coverages very, very quickly. I think there's one more, Isabel. Uh, credit insurance. So this is a big one. Like essentially it says if you have um, credit card debt and you pass away, this insurance is meant to pay off your credit cards. And so I think in theory, it sounds like a, a great idea, right? To pay off your debt, but it's super expensive, number one. And number two, right? Isn't that the purpose of having life insurance is to support, you know, your surviving family members? Plus like, don't carry big credit card balances to begin with, right? This is a financial planning show. We should just get that right out of the way. I mean, you shouldn't be, we, we should have that covered first, right? If you have extra money to spend on insurance, then maybe be putting that toward the credit card balance instead. But also another piece of that is if you die with debt, it's not a foregone conclusion that your beneficiaries, your survivors have to pay that debt. No, in fact, in most cases, unless it's a joint card, they do not. Right, even if they're your spouse, unless it's a community property state or unless it's a joint card. I mean, even if if you own a card and you have your spouse as like an authorized user, if it's not a community property state, it's very unlikely that your spouse is going to have to pay that off. Now, that being said, your, your executor, your administrator is supposed to use your estate's assets when you pass away to pay off your debts, right? But oftentimes, beneficiaries or survivors come first and then debts come after. So helpful. We have covered so much ground on this show. We've talked about a lot of different types of insurance policies. In the couple of minutes that we have left, I'd love to get some overarching guidance from both of you as how do you think about insurance with a capital I? And Isabel, can you go first? Yeah. I mean, the guidance in general that I give to my clients is don't let the premium payments or the complexity of the policy deter you from getting something that you need. You know, there are some insurance plans that are just necessary to help offset or mitigate any major financial issues that could come up with an unplanned event, you know, health-wise or otherwise. And But also at the same time, while there are quite a few different types of insurance that you absolutely need, don't let anxiety or fear or good salesmen, you know, also convince you to get into policies that are already covered by your other broader plans like life or health or disability that would be a greater benefit to you in the long run. So get the facts, 
talk to your advisors, you know, understand your options and base your decision on what's the best type of policy for you and your family and your beneficiaries. Rob, you lead insurance for Edelman Financial Engines. You're the guy. What is your overall advice? Yeah, I'd I'd have two pieces of advice to share. Uh, The first would be to seek guidance from a licensed professional that can give you an opinion about your needs. Here at Edelman Financial Engines, we have licensed planners like Isabel, and we have in-house experts. Like you. Like me. But we don't sell insurance. So get guidance from somebody. We have brokerage partners that our clients can speak to about coverage that are not going to get a a high-pressure sales pitch as well. The second piece of advice I would get is when you are shopping for insurance, speak with a broker who can show you quotes from many carriers uh, so that you're, you're getting a broad sense of shopping the market, if you will. Amazing. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for your expertise and your insight. It's been fun. It has. Thanks, Jean. Thanks, Jean. Thanks, Isabel. That is it for this show. I hope that you'll walk away feeling more confident about your insurance needs and how to cover them. If you have a question about anything we talked about today or anything related to your personal finances overall, send us an email. Just go to everydaywealth.com, scroll down to the blue box that says ask a question. Type in your info, send it my way, and we may read your email on the next show. Be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast wherever you stream your favorite podcasts, or just visit everydaywealth.com where all our episodes are available to you. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk soon. You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. If you've missed an episode or are interested in additional personal finance topics, be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast. Our podcast library offers helpful insights on topics such as tax-efficient portfolios, retirement withdrawal strategies, investing, and financial planning, to name just a few. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.